Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is your go-to show to meet the most inspiring people living, working, and recreating along the American shorelines. So today I am particularly excited to introduce you all to my guest, and I know that I say this about pretty much every guest on my show, which is true because I have the privilege of speaking with a lot of remarkable humans, but Nick DePasquale is someone who has served as a role model for me along my career path. And this is because during my time as a fellow at the Chesapeake Bay program, he was the director and he did an incredible job demonstrating what impactful leadership looks like. So in addition to serving as the director of the Chesapeake Bay program for, I believe it is six years, um, Nick has more than 35 years of public policy and environmental management experience in both the public and private sectors. Nick previously served as Deputy Secretary of Air, Waste, and Radiation Protection in the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection, Director of the Environmental Management Center for the Brandywine Conservancy in Chads Ford, Pennsylvania, and Secretary of the Delaware Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Control. He also worked for six years in the private sector as a senior consultant on environmental and ecological restoration issues with an environmental engineering consulting firm in Delaware. He served as the director of waste management and water pollution control programs for the Missouri Department of Natural Resources and as a research analyst with the Missouri House of Representatives. So as you can see, Nick has extensive background in the world of conservation And I feel like we could spend an entire episode on each one of these roles. So I just wanted to offer a quick overview of his expertise so we can dive into some more specifics with the time that we have together today. So with that, Nick, welcome to the show and thank you for joining me. Thanks, Janet. It's a pleasure to be here. And I know I covered some of the professional roles that you served in over the course of your career, but I realize that I don't have a full picture of your background. Will you bring me and the listeners up to speed on some of the more formative moments that led you to where you are today? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I was born at an early age, and uh, <laughs> my mother was there if you wanted to be with me. Uh, Just kidding. Um, So I was um, born and raised in upstate New York, Rochester, New York, uh, very close to the shores of Lake Ontario, where the Genesee River uh, discharges into the lake. And um, uh, went to a a Catholic grammar school, uh, Catholic high school. um, And really, we we lived um, right across from a public high school athletic field. Uh, I had two brothers, one older, one younger, and a sister who came along a little bit later. Um, but we spent a lot of time outdoors, uh, obviously uh, playing baseball, basketball, football, tennis, soccer, um, you name it. We had access to uh, playing fields. We also were in a um, part of the city that was very close to the rural edge. Um, So there were farms that were located 
very uh, close to us within walking distance. So we were able to um, take advantage of that as well as uh, walking to the lake and spending a lot of time there during the summer. So we spent a lot of time outdoors. Um, we didn't have to worry, you know, about um, any safety issues. Uh, back then, uh, other people in the neighborhood would kind of keep an eye on everybody's children, make sure everything was okay. So it was kind of a, an idyllic um, childhood, actually. And I, I kind of believe that that contributed to my interest in a career in environmental protection. Um, it was a pretty turbulent time when you think about it socially. Uh, there in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s, there were a lot of social movements going on. Uh, certainly civil, civil rights was a big issue. Uh, the women's movement, the environmental movement. Uh, the war in Vietnam. Uh, so there was a lot of social turmoil. And um, it was kind of in that milieu that um, we grew up and I, I think probably started to develop some opinions about the world and, and how we saw ourselves in it. Um, I went off to college and went to the Rochester Institute of Technology and enrolled in an uh, electrical engineering program. My dad was a construction electrician. Um, I mean, we were, came from a working class background. Um, and I thought uh, getting into a, a double E degree program would uh, allow me to advance my career. Um, the Vietnam War was upon us at the time. And um, let's say my studies were not going that well, uh, first semester. And um, I was pretty sure that I would be um, kind of washing out of college. So I pulled a draft number of 57. Um, and and uh, it was a lottery system back then. And um, the they would take you depending on your birth date and where you came up in this lottery. Um, and the year that I pulled uh, 57, um, they went to 129. Uh, in terms of drafting people to go to Vietnam. So I was uh, a bit concerned about uh, fighting in a war. I didn't like the idea of shooting at people and perhaps killing them. And uh, I actually thought even less about getting shot at and maybe uh, getting killed myself. So I decided to uh, seize the day, so to speak. And I enlisted in the Navy specifically to get into the um, submarine nuclear power program. And I thought that uh, it would be a good way for me to um, satisfy my military obligation uh, and at the same time uh, craft a, a career as a uh, power plant operator, nu nuclear power plant operator. Uh, back then, that was 1970. And um, <clears throat> nuclear power uh, was coming on scene commercially for commercial power plants. And I thought if I could be trained as a reactor operator, I could simply um, walk out of the Navy and right into a, a fairly well-paying job that was uh, at the time thought to be beneficial uh, in terms of the environment, that um, it was not as polluting as coal-fired power plants and, and the like. Um, I spent six years in the Navy and, and uh figured out that nuclear power was not the way to go, uh, that it had its own set of problems, uh, disposal of high-level radioactive waste, the proliferation of contaminated materials, um, 
products and, and there were better ways and, and uh, more elegant ways of generating power through renewables. So after I got out of the service, I went back to college. Uh, this time did much better. Um, graduated uh, summa cum laude from uh, University uh, of New York at Brockport, uh, and then went on to do my graduate work at Washington University in St. Louis uh, in a program that was called Technology and Human Affairs. That sounds very 60s, 70s-ish. <laughs> but basically, it was an attempt to um, give social science people an idea of what some of the technical issues were that um, government and industry would have to deal with and to give the engineers um, and, and technical folks some exposure to some of the policy and social issues that would come out of a lot of these technologies. So there was a, um, a, a discipline or a focus on the environment, communications, healthcare technology, international development. And uh, I pursued um, a, a focus on energy and environmental policy um, and graduated from um, uh, Washington University with a master's degree. And there, uh, from there, I went on to, uh, it, that was um, it late, I'm sorry, uh, early 1980s. And um, the political situation in Washington um, was um, not, not conducive to getting work in uh, the environmental field, but I was able to take a position with the Missouri House of Representatives as a um, research analyst responsible for four committees, uh, the Energy and Environment Committee, State Parks, Natural Resources and Recreation, uh, the Labor Committee, and the Mining Committee. So I had four committees. So I was able to um, see how the sausage gets made. Uh, basically, I was involved in helping to make the sausage, so to speak. Uh, I would draft legislation and uh, in response to legislators' requests and do research on a variety of different issues in those areas. Um, ironically, uh, well, not ironically, but uh, after three and a half years doing that, I um, took a position with the Missouri Department of Natural Resources as director of the waste management programs. Um, and I had the opportunity to actually imp implement a piece of legislation that I was responsible for drafting. And uh, that was a, an extremely humbling experience. Um, you think you know what you're talking about when you, you hold those legislative jobs. Uh, in fact, I found that uh, implementing the law was a lot more than uh, developing it and getting it enacted. Uh, I did that for five years. Uh, so I was responsible for the hazardous waste program, solid waste program, underground storage tanks, infectious waste, um, basically uh, the, the Superfund program, the state cleanup program. And um, it was a very dynamic environment back then. Uh, Superfund in particular was a uh, very dynamic program, uh, well-funded. And um, I had the opportunity to manage about 200 people uh, in those areas. Uh, and it, it was pretty exciting. Um, from there, I moved to the water program, uh, which was a lot different. Uh, it was a kind of a sleepy program, wasn't well-funded. And I was asked to try to um, reinvigorate that, which uh, I was partially successful in, in doing. 
Uh, from there, I took a position with the Delaware Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Control as Director of Waste Management uh, and Air Pollution Control. Um, and it, it was somewhat intentional on my part that um, I had waste, I had water, and really the only remaining media program was the air program from a regulatory point of view. Um, and so I decided that would certainly help me in my career. So I moved to, to Delaware with my family and um, did that for five years. And, and this you'll see is a theme <laughs> that I'll talk about later. Um, but um, I was recommended to become the secretary of the department uh, upon the um, departure of the, the existing secretary. Uh, he recommended that I take the position, and it, it was a political appointment, so it had to go through the governor's office and all that. And um, they had some hesitation, but they ultimately decided to select me, and I became the secretary of that department. And that really was kind of um, a, a huge awakening for me. I'd always looked at uh, the environment in a pretty holistic sort of way. So um, you've heard the term ecosystem-based. Um, you have to look at the environment in its totality in order to understand the impacts that are occurring from industrialization and, and the use of technologies and to uh, understand whether or not you're succeeding in terms of repairing the damage that has been done. So with that job, um, I was responsible not only for all of the regulatory programs, but uh, also state parks, uh, fish and wildlife, soil and water conservation. So it gave me uh, experience on the natural resource side of the house, so to speak. And I think that's really um, kind of what helped me ultimately progress to the uh, other positions that I held during my career. Yeah, and I, you know, I think when you were talking about ecosystem-based management, I, I started thinking about how this this show it tries to look at the person as a whole. So, you know, in the conservation space, you know, I the Bay Program, I knew you as the director and as the leader, but. There's so much more there. And I, I think that's something that I feel really fortunate about to have this platform is I get to take a moment to have conversations with people like you to understand and demonstrate that there's no one direct path to get to where you are. And I, I think that is such a value of this show, too, is that we have people listening that are either considering embarking on a career in conservation or trying to understand the issues a little bit better. And uh, it's just really nice to take a moment to hear how everyone got to where they are now. Because mm -hmm. uh, I can relate to that too. You know, there are definite moments in my life where I felt lost or I've zigzagged, I've changed majors, I've tried all different kinds of things. And just realizing that there's a lesson in each of those experiences, whether they are the most fun experience or not, there's something that is there for you to learn and to grow from. Um, that, that you can use to project yourself to whatever the next step is. So I, I really appreciate you sharing that that holistic view of your life to where you got to today, and um, hope that you know some of the listeners can learn from some of those experiences as well, um, especially the ones that may be feeling a little bit stuck right now, uh, with everything at a at a standstill with um, the shutdowns and COVID and on and on and on, um, you know, and so now 
thinking about our our experience together at the Bay Program, a, a memory that sticks out for me is your love for spending time outside, you know, whether it's kayaking or I, I feel like whenever we would come into a meeting with you, you you had some sort of anecdote or interesting fact about shad or forage fish or spending time around trees. I think that I still cite this and I'm pretty sure it was you that taught me this, that um, spending time in the forest, you know, there are actual mental health and physical health benefits that you can gain from spending time out in the woods. Um, and I'm pretty sure you taught me that. And I still love to share that fact with people when we're outside. Um, so that's one thing that sticks with me from my experience with you at the Bay Program. And I am wondering, what are some of your favorite ways to spend time outside? And do you have any favorite places to recreate? And if so, why? Well, it's, uh, that's a great question. And um, you, you referred to forest bathing, uh, which is, it, it, it's called uh, Shinrin Yoku in Japan. And um, in Japan, they've done a lot of scientific studies to measure the impact of spending time in a forest, not doing anything, not necessarily doing exercise or hiking, or, but just spending time in a, a forest and what that does physiologically. Um, and it definitely shows, and this has been proven uh, as fact, that it lowers your blood pressure, increases uh, cortisol levels. Um, you know, it has a, a, a very calming effect. And I noticed certainly in, in the course of my life that uh, if I would spend time down by the lake, for example, I would go there if I was uh, troubled by something. Uh, I was trying to work through some issues or take a hike in a park, a forested park, that um, it would help focus me. It would help calm me down. It would still the voices in my head, so to speak, and allow me to think a lot more clearly. Um, and I think it's been recognized. There have been a number of books written um, over the course of the last couple of decades that show that, in fact, um, this is a, a verifiable impact. Uh, but for me, uh, um, kayaking probably is the, the way I like to spend uh, my off hours, so to speak. I have a lot of off hours now that I'm retired. <laughs> but, um, you know, we, my wife and I um, get out as frequently as we can, um, and we don't do whitewater ca- kayaking. Uh, it's mainly uh, smaller streams and, and tributaries that we like to uh, meander through and just observe wildlife. Um, you, you get on the water, and for me, it's, it's just like um, a cleansing, so to speak. Uh, I had a, a friend who uh, talked about her grandfather who used to take a walk after work every day, and um, you know she finally asked him, she said, you know, Gramps, why do you, why do you take these walks? And um, his response was to blow the stink of the day off. Um, and, you know, it is uh, certainly revitalizing uh, to get a little bit of exercise, to spend some time in nature and, and, and get focused. Um, but we, we like uh, kayaking and hiking in particular, going different places. Um, we try to uh, keep it mixed um, so that we're experiencing new places and going back to old places that we enjoy. 
um, living on the eastern shore, I moved from Annapolis to uh, to Chestertown, um, and access to waterways. Uh, there's there's so much of it that you can uh, spend your time on a, a different body of water every time you go out. Uh, but we certainly have our favorite spots to go to. Um, we also enjoy traveling, and I, I personally think it has a similar kind of effect that you experience new and, and different places. Um, you know, you're experiencing cultures that are completely different than what you're used to, and I think it opens you up uh, and makes you a lot more receptive to understanding that, you know, it's not just the way we do things in the United States. Uh, there are a variety of, of different cultures and, and all of them have uh, great value. So we try to travel as much as we can, uh, usually taking one big trip a year, um, usually, you know, at least two weeks um, and then smaller trips throughout the year. Um, so that's pretty much how we how we spend our time. And um my wife and I uh, enjoy red wine, and we like to um, have variety in tasting those as well. So it all works out. <laughs> They're all beautiful pastimes that I, I share a passion for as well. And, you know, for listeners, I, I know that many of you are very well aware that I I love and adore the state of Maine and New England, but I feel like a close second is absolutely the Chesapeake Bay watershed and particularly the state of Maryland. I, um, you know, I moved to Maryland knowing nothing about the state. I moved for my fellowship position. I knew no one and I knew nothing, but I was excited to learn and explore and experience something completely new. And I cannot think of a place that has been more life-changing and impactful to me uh, between the the career that I had there, the people that I met, and the outdoor opportunities for recreation that I was able to engage in. Um, when we think about kayaking, kayaking along the Chesapeake Bay and some of the tributaries and wetlands that are there are, I just have some of the fondest memories of those moments, um, especially there are certain times of year where you get the bioluminescence um, where your paddles are going through the water and everything just illuminates and lights up. And, um, you know, that area holds a very special place in my heart and in my memory. And I hope if you're listening out there and you have not yet had the chance to travel to the Mid-Atlantic and Chesapeake Bay area that uh, hopefully in the future on your travel list, you can put that on there because it's a truly special place. I've also been... Um, spending a lot of time lately reflecting. So thinking about taking walks in the forest and out in nature. Um, you know, Nick also has a bunch of new puppies and so do I. That's something that we share. <laughs> um, and the, one of the perks I've noticed about having this, this dog in my life is I, where I might be a little more inclined in certain moments or on certain days to not leave the house or exercise, I have to. And usually I take to the trails or the parks around my house, and that gives me some great time to reflect um, and think and observe all the wildlife and everything that's happening around me and check in with my priorities. And you know, something that has come to mind lately 
And especially now that I'm not brand new to this field or this career, is all of the amazing people that have helped me along the way. So, you know, the people that have opened doors or provided guidance or opportunities and just, you know, reflecting and thinking about how incredibly important those connections are to have. And now I hope to serve as a mentor for others and use the privilege and connections that I have to lift others up. Um, So really just thinking about how none of us get to where we are without the assistance of other people. And I'm wondering that, Nick, when you reflect on your career, who were those influential people to you and who opened doors and provided you opportunities to get your foot in the door? That's a, a great question. And I've thought about about that a lot, actually. And um, throughout my career, I've always served in appointed positions, um, even some positions that were uh, middle-level management um, were positions that served at the pleasure of the department director or, or the governor or whoever. Um, and it wasn't until I took the Bay uh, program job that I was actually in a civil service position, which has certain protections associated with it. Um, and so throughout my career, I've, I've always been very... Um, independent. Um, I never registered with a a political party, Democrat or Republican. I always uh, registered as unaffiliated or or independent. Um, And I didn't want that political overture, overtone to kind of uh, reflect on on me as a a manager or an executive in one of the agencies. Um, and I, like you, um, when I moved to Missouri, I didn't know anybody there. Uh, when I took the position at the um, Missouri House of Representatives, I had no political connections. Uh, basically, it was my resume, my um, educational background, my experience that uh, I like to think got me the job. Um, when I moved to Delaware, it was the same thing. I mean, um, I met with the secretary of the department in an interview and um, you know, I didn't know anybody there. Uh, nobody provided me any um, introduction or anything. I just kind of, it was a, a cold call. I applied for the position. I got the interview and ultimately got the job. Um, there have been influences in my life, however, that um, helped me kind of negotiate my way through. I had a professor uh, when I was doing my undergrad work who was uh, very independent minded and um, he was also very opinionated. Um, and I guess I, I kind of shared those uh, qualities with him. But, um, you know, he always kind of encouraged us to chart your own course and and figure things out uh, and and make decisions based on that rather than relying on individuals who might be able to put in a good word for you and, and um, help you get the job. Um, but I understand that's not the way other people do it. I mean, some of, some of my success, I guess, is like you, my willingness to pick up everything and move to some place where I know no one and I know nothing about and just, uh, you know, chart my own course. Uh, and I think that's served me very well throughout my career. Um, I did um, 
have one situation when I worked for the Missouri Department of Natural Resources. Um, as I mentioned, I, I served as director of waste management programs first. And um, I had a, a somewhat contentious relationship with the current, uh, then current department director. Um, we always got uh, along, but we fought most of the time, uh, really had kind of an energetic exchange of, of ideas and, and, uh, and recommendations. And he came up to me after I'd been with the department for about five years, and he said, Nick, we want you to take over the water program. And I said, the water program? You know, it's it, it, basically most of the staff is retired in place. Uh, they haven't gotten any new funding. Um, you know, the, basically they're running a bare bones operation. Uh, you know, it's not the, the sexy environmental program that uh, the waste programs were at the time. Um, why would I want to do that? <laughs> and uh, he, he insisted. He said, well, we think uh, you're the, the right guy for the job. And I thought to myself, is this his way of just kind of moving me into a dead end position, just get me out of the way? Or is he sincere about this, that he thinks I've got the kind of um, experience and qualifications that I can really kind of uh, reinvigorate this program? And so I asked him, I said, uh, you know, what would, uh, what would happen if I, I declined your invitation? <laughs> and he said, well, you could find someplace else to work. Uh, I said, oh, okay. Um, so I had a, a young family at the time and um, obviously uh, didn't want to just pick them up and move them uh, someplace. I didn't have another job to go to right away. So I took the job and um, it turned out to be one of the best decisions of my life, or maybe it wasn't my decision, but a uh, decision that got made for me. Um, it really gave me a challenge you know, the, the, the waste management job, uh, it was well-funded, a lot of very talented staff, a lot of uh, focus and, and um, support for the program. Um, and so the challenge was taking this sleepy, underfunded program and turning it into something. And um, I, I started I stayed in that position for about a year and a half, really tried to give it the best shot I could. Um, we were able to revitalize the ambient water quality monitoring system. Uh, we started to attract uh, younger and, and, and talented staff, uh, and it really started to pick up steam. Uh, and then the, the opportunity uh, came open in Delaware, and I decided to take that. But... Um, it was a challenge. Uh, I wasn't sure that I could succeed. Um, I did think that it was kind of a, almost like a demotion. Uh, I went from you know managing 200 people to managing uh, about 70 people. Um, but it, it certainly uh, expanded my range of experience and really kind of put a challenge to me to see if I could make this work, make it uh, uh, basically fulfill the wishes of the director in terms of revitalizing the program. And uh, it was at that point that I decided that um, whether I wanted to or not, I would uh, consciously look for a new position after being in a position for five years or so. So every five years, I'd start looking around and it, it could be working for the same agency, but just in a different capacity. Uh, or it could be picking up and, and moving halfway across the country to take a, another position. 
but um, it gave me confidence uh, that I could accomplish something like that. Um, and it gave me um, a sense of, of um, calmness, I guess, that I could move, I could take different jobs, and I, I could succeed at it. Um, and th that served me well when I took the Department of Natural Resources in Delaware uh, position, first as a division director and then ultimately as, um, as the secretary, and especially the secretary's position, because then I was responsible for 820 people and a variety of programs that I didn't have a deep background on. Uh, and I asked myself, uh, for the first couple of years, uh, did I make the right decision? And I think the previous experience um, gave me the confidence to, to stick with it and see it through and, and make it a success, or at least I thought it was a success. Yeah. And so, you know, something that we're hearing as a, a common theme is, you know, you've, you've just served in so many different leadership roles. And because we have a lot of conservation professionals or the next generation of leaders that listen to this show, I'm wondering if you can share some insight on what effective leadership means to you. What does that look like? Yeah, that's um, a great question. And uh, I didn't have any specific management training when I um, started my career. And so it was, you know, kind of um, on the job. But what I learned pretty quickly is, number one, um, you don't know everything and you have very talented staff who've been around for a while and they know a lot more than you do um, and that you should actually listen to them. <laughs> so that was, that was kind of, and you might think of it as just um, kind of a survival uh, technique, but um, there are a lot of managers who come in and they think, well, I've got the big job now and I can tell everybody what to do. And, you know, I can show them that I don't have to disagree with them and I can make decisions on my own. Um, and that person usually fails. Um, and so I, I spent a lot of time as I took these different positions, especially initially, listening to staff, um, trying to understand their recommendations and what the basis for them uh, were, um, and realizing that you can't let the politics kind of drive the decision-making. That is a fatal error. Uh, you have to accommodate the politics, certainly, but you shouldn't uh, let that move you to make decisions that you wouldn't otherwise make. So you had to find creative ways to try to satisfy the politics of the situation and still accomplish the job. And, and that certainly uh, played out in every single position I had to some degree or another. Uh, and in particular, the Bay job, because the politics there were, were so much more intense. Uh, and, you know, I think another key, key trait of effective leaders is, and I'm hearing this a lot in your experience, is no matter what situation you're in, looking for opportunities to make progress. And, um, you know, this can be an overwhelming field to work in. Um, climate is not necessarily the most uplifting uh, line of work. It can <laughs> right. be, but, you know, it can be very overwhelming. And I cite this a lot when I my family starts political debates or those heavier discussions right now that, um, you know, typically in the past, I might have been a little more tolerant of or um, 
interested in engaging in a hearty debate, but I, I found that my patience has run a little short. And I think where I've landed is, you know, I spend at least 40 hours a week thinking about the climate crisis. And so when I am not, you know, I don't know if I'm ever not thinking about it, but there are moments where, you know, you need to give your mind a break. And, um, just to have that energy to engage in some sort of heavy political debate, um, you know, can be a lot. Sometimes it's necessary, uh, but sometimes you just need to take a little time for yourself. And, you know, over time that this career can wear on you if, if you're not taking care of yourself. And I have found that looking for opportunities for progress and, and celebrating victories, no matter how big or small, um, because you find that you can get a lot of small wins. So if you're only celebrating those large victories, um, it might be few and far between. <laughs> you're, mm-hmm. you're having those rewarding moments. And, and I also cite and look to the work of inspirational people to get me through those moments of doubt or pessimism. So what keeps you motivated and inspired? And you know, what did you find over the course of your career? Like, what were those things that kept you going? Yeah. Um, so I always consider myself to be somewhat self-motivated. Uh, so th- I knew this is what I wanted to do. And this is all I wanted to do very early on um, in, in my career. And so kind of just sticking with it. Um, and, and you're right, sometimes uh, it feels like there are more losses than there are gains. And um, a lot of things are beyond your control. But it would be those small victories um, that were really rewarding. Um, I, you know, we didn't have an opportunity, especially at the Bay Program, uh, to celebrate as much as I was hoping we could celebrate. And we had a number of successes there. Um, and I think we did, uh, you know, try to reflect and, and try to um, say, okay, this is something that, that we've accomplished. It's a good thing. And here's the result. Um, with the Bay program, uh, there are some people who felt like uh, a tremendous amount of money had been poured into the program and, you know, we continue to have uh, water quality impairments. And, you know, some people think that um, <laughs> we know everything there is to know about the environment and that we should be uh, further along than we actually are. Um, and you have to try to remind them that, you know, you, you need to put these things in context. So, and, and you've probably heard me say this more times than um, you'd care to hear, but, um, you know, the progress that was made with the Bay Program occurred when population was increasing, development was increasing. Uh, we went from 13 million people in the watershed uh, back in the 50s to uh, over 18 million today. So with that comes all of the the building, uh, the commercial and residential development, the uh, the um, impervious surfaces that are laid down, and rooftops, and parking lots, and roadways, and all the rest of it. So, you know, those are all continued assaults on the environment, um, and there's progress has been made even in spite of all that development. So, you just have to remind people that uh, we are making progress and, and it does take some time. 
when you think about the fact that it took uh, two centuries to degrade the environment in the United States to the point where it is, uh, where it was, let's say, back in the 50s and 60s, um, and we've only been at this a couple of decades in terms of restoration, I, I think you can understand that um, the, the environment doesn't turn on a dime and that it takes years before you see the results of the restoration work that's occurring. Um, there's a, a professor, Walt, Walter Boynton, who worked for the University of Maryland, uh, who has studied um, the impacts of nutrient sediment runoff uh, for, for decades himself. And he looked at the um, area around, um, uh, what's the name of the, trying to remember the watershed, um, but it was an area over by Waldorf in Maryland. And it was um, kind of an isolated uh, body of water with uh, a history of, of being very biologically productive uh, that uh, ended up becoming severely degraded. And when you look at development that occurred around it, you could see why. Um, you know, there was, uh, it's, it's close to DC, so there was a lot of residential commercial development that occurred. And he looked specifically at um, improved treatment at wastewater treatment operations. So uh, water tr wastewater treatment plants that had new technologies put on them to reduce nitrogen, phosphorus, and, and uh, nutrient loading. And he looked at uh, underwater grasses. And with wastewater treatment, the technology goes on, so you get this immediate reduction. But what he showed was it was almost a decade before you actually saw the full environmental response as a result of that. So even something as straightforward and immediate as wastewater treatment technology takes a while before you see the, the um, environmental response that occurs. So some of the things that we're doing, have been doing uh, since the 80s are now starting to show results. We're seeing uh, certainly less severe uh, less frequent um, dead zones in in the bay where we have areas where there's very low or, or no dissolved oxygen. Uh, when you look at the historic data, you can see a very clear trend where uh, that's improving, where we're not getting as many uh, dead zones. They're not as big. They're not as severe. And, you know, we're looking at... Um, a period of time since the 1980s. So we're looking at the basically 35, almost 40 years, four decades. Uh, and we're just now seeing the response from that. Um, and some of the ecological disruptions that have occurred, you can't even repair them. Uh, so you have to find ways to try to offset them. Uh, so this is a pretty tricky business. We don't know everything you know, how the, the environment responds. We're just learning now, for example, that uh, going back to the tree analogy, that trees can communicate uh, among themselves, that they have an underground network uh, where they can send chemical signals to each other if there's like a pest infestation. So uh, the trees can put up defenses. Um, we're finding that, uh, again, with trees, um, they will... Uh, enter into um, not competition with one another, but actually uh, mutually beneficial relationships with one another. Uh, we didn't know that, you know, 10, 20 years ago. 
Um, so we're, we're learning, we're building the aircraft while we're trying to fly it, right? Or we're flying it as we're trying to build it. Uh, we don't always know everything there is to know, and we just have to have the patience to look at the long term and see what works and what doesn't. And I think some of the actions that have been taken with respect to Chesapeake Bay restoration are showing that, um, in fact, what we've been doing is working. We just need to do a heck of a lot more of it. Yeah, and I think that is an incredibly important point to make is that all of this work takes time and we live in a world that is, it, it expects immediacy. You know, we can access pretty much anything we want uh, in the matter of minutes or in the palm of our hand. And, um, you know, the effect that that has on our attention span and our expectations for results, I think is uh, astounding. And as you know, through my role working with the communications department at the Bay program, I think that was some an experience that I learned a lot from. But I think one of my favorite parts of that job was we got to look at the data and all of the incredible work that everybody at the Bay program was doing and interpret that. And in addition to communicating over and over and over again that, you know, these things take time, it's also monitoring trends. Uh, you know, I think a common thing for us to see was there'd be a particularly bad year for, you know, seagrass or dead zones or blue crab populations or a great year. And you get the headlines that reflect that, that's saying, you know, this is horrible and, you know, inflating the issue. And, and I think it was such a big responsibility that the Bay program serves in and, and, as communicators to be able to, to take that data and tell the story behind it is why did that happen and explore why it happened and then share that with the public. I think, um, you know, there's so much value to the Bay program and I fully believe in everything that they do, their mission and the work, but being able to have a dedicated communications team as part of that institution to explain to people and connect with the public um, and really talk about the Bay Health in a relatable way um, is so, so important. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, for a lot of scientists, I'm not a scientist per se, but uh, I certainly have a technical background. Um, sometimes scientists have a hard time kind of uh, talking English. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, and, and uh, they're great scientists, but when it comes to trying to communicate to the public who doesn't have a deep background on, on scientific issues, uh, sometimes the message gets a little bit lost. Um, and the communications office did do a great job of that. And I think, too, you, uh, I think we're smarter in terms of looking at uh, the general public and, and getting sharing their observations. I, I recall um, I was looking for a house over on the Eastern shore a while back and um, we were out with a realtor and, and uh, there was this nice community on the water, had a common dock. And um, we went down to take a look at the dock and she, ex she was explaining uh, kind of the ownership of it and the use of it and uh, the fact that this would be part of the, the house purchase. And uh, without uh, prompting her at all. She didn't know my background at all. Um, she said, you know, the water clarity 
has been incredible the last couple of years. This was an observation that she was making based on living there for a long time. And I and that uh, lined up certainly with what we were seeing in terms of um, the uh, measurements that that we were taking and putting into a very rigorous, scientifically rigorous system. But getting that kind of reinforcement that yep, uh, we're seeing it in the data, but people are seeing it from the peer. You know, they're seeing it from their own docs and uh, taking advantage of those observations to kind of support the scientific findings as well is, is really important. Yeah. And, you know, the, the Bay program, they, as an institution, they cover so much scientific ground. And just the sheer amount of research that comes out of that place is mind boggling. And to lead an organization like that, um, I feel like you, you yourself need to be really organized or, you know, and or have a very, very organized team behind you. Um, and I'm just wondering, what is it, you know, what, is, what was it like? What was your experience like leading the Chesapeake Bay program? Yeah, it was um, pretty overwhelming, especially initially. I mean, I, because I had worked in uh, Delaware and Pennsylvania previously, I was obviously aware of the Bay program. And, and um, you know, one of the things that drew me to apply for the job was because it was a holistic ecosystem-based uh, program, which I thought was really the way uh, we needed to manage the environment. But uh, I, even with that background, I had no idea of the uh, complexity of the institution that has uh, grown up around the Chesapeake Bay program. It's not just the program itself, but all of the uh, university participation, all of the non-governmental organizations uh, trying to get a sense for the reach and the range of, uh, of that effort. Um, and, and even now it's expanding further with the 2014 watershed agreement um, where we're looking at the uh, social science indicators as well, uh, looking at issues like diversity and uh, equity and, and inclusion. Um, uh, looking at things that uh, are are basically the human dimension uh, and understanding that, you know, we have to capture the minds and, and imagination of others who aren't directly focused on Bay restoration per se, but should be uh, having a voice and should be participating in the effort uh, to the extent that it lines up with their own interests. So it's gone from, you know, a pretty rigorous scientific program, a hard science program, to also starting to include social science aspects of it. And, you know, the ecosystem-based program, uh, we're part of that ecosystem. Humans are part of that ecosystem. And sometimes we're not the, the least destructive part of it. Uh, we're the most destructive part of it. So we need to understand what motivates people. Uh, how we can get them to change behaviors, simple things like, you know, picking up dog waste, for example. Uh, been doing a lot of that lately, yeah. I've got to tell you, <laughs> with eight eight puppies running around. But, um, you know, just trying to keep the that uh, pollutant out of local waterways. Um, I had the benefit of working on one project um, when I was in Delaware, when I, when I was working for the consulting firm that took a look at, uh, actually did DNA analysis of, of pollutants entering 
the water body. And this had to do with a, a, a racetrack, a horse racetrack. And um, there was a concern by EPA out of Region 3 that, um, that, that the horses were causing pollution of the stream. So the company did a, um, a DNA analysis of, of the waters entering into these uh, streams and, and creeks and found that you know, a good percentage of it is just uh, animals. <laughs> it's, you know, geese and it's raccoons and it's field mice and all sorts of things. Um, but there's also that human dimension. And um, we need to understand what our contribution is. We can we can control our contribution. We can't always control the, the animal population's uh, contributions. But again, looking at uh, us being a uh, an active participant in that restoration effort and looking at our own behaviors and, and things that we can change that will improve the uh, water quality in these water bodies. Yeah. And you know, the Chesapeake Bay is so uniquely positioned to face a wide range of water quality challenges, but even thinking about, you know, thinking about the human impact with all of the agricultural land and then all of the urban area that surrounds the Bay if I'm remembering correctly, it, it has the largest land to water ratio anywhere in the world. And so you face both agricultural runoff and, and stormwater runoff from urban areas, sort of as like a one-two punch for when you have particularly rainy seasons, um, just d- completely diminishing water quality. Um, so when you think about back to, you know, when you have years with the big dead zones or really poor water quality in in certain areas, Um, just getting back to why and looking at our impact and the role that we might play in, in diminishing that water quality. Mm -hmm. It's all connected for sure. Yep. Um, So some people listening to this may be living in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. It is quite expansive, so it's probably likely that people are sitting there listening to this uh, in the watershed. And they're probably wondering, what can they do to be better stewards of the environment and within their own communities? Do you have any insight into that? Yeah, um, and, and in fact, we looked at this pretty extensively um, by doing a, a number of different surveys. Um, but just to go back to that uh, one issue you raised, um, the land-to-water ratio in the Chesapeake Bay watershed is 14 to 1. So for 14 units of land to one equivalent unit of water, which is five times greater than any other estuary, any other watershed. So yeah, whatever happens on the ground has an impact on water quality for sure. Um, but uh, with with regard, and we get asked questions like this a lot in terms of what can I do to help out, and um, you know the response has been interesting. Um, we've we've approached the the faith community, for example, um, and and those who believe in um, restoration ecology as part of their responsibility as humans uh, and efforts that they've been undertaking, for example, at their local houses of worship, where they say, well, we can, tro- we can help control stormwater runoff from our facilities. Um, there was an effort 
with the Alliance for the Chesapeake Bay and some grant funding um, and the interfaith community to uh, take a look at schools and churches and see how they might be able to control their runoff, um, plant vegetation that could take up a lot of the nutrients. And people get energized by those kinds of projects. Um, it's not just the environmental benefit, but it's also just the visual uh, improvement that they're making in their own communities uh, that really motivates them. Um, you know, with uh, local decision makers, uh, you know, uh, town councils and, um, and uh, mayors and town planning offices and the like, a lot of times what you need to do, because they have certainly competing interests uh, for every dollar that they have avail- available to them through taxes, there are a lot of demands on that dollar. Um, and, you know, they're, they have to fund emergency services and the police force and, uh, you know, their own planning and zoning operations. And so what what's going to motivate them? Um, and what we found is if you can show that... Um, in many cases, a lot of the best management practices that are used to control these pollutants also have what we refer to as corollary benefits. There are benefits beyond uh, the improvement of water quality. Uh, Tree planting in cities, for example, and and this may seem a little bit counterintuitive to some, but what they've shown in, in research work that's been done is you actually get a reduction in crime when you have a, a city that has a, a, a heavy tree canopy where there are a lot of trees, uh, you would think just the opposite would be true. But in fact, they've been able to show through these studies that, uh, in fact, that's the case. Um, you get improvements in um, health, for example, and, and beyond what we talked about earlier about um, you know the physiological impacts when you take a hike. Um, they've shown that uh, people who are uh, undergoing some kind of medical treatment at a hospital, when they're, when they're in a room that has a view of trees, that they recover more quickly and more completely than that same type of person with the same type of disease who has a room that doesn't have a view of, of the outdoors. Uh, you know, these things are, are things that you wouldn't necessarily come quickly to mind when you're looking at making the improvements or the uh, environmental benefits. Um, a lot of uh, local towns depend on uh, reservoirs for their drinking water supply. Uh, we had a case here um, uh, up in the northern, toward the head of the bay where there is a reservoir and it was surrounded by agriculture and there was a lot of runoff. And they were having to take water from another district and actually blend it with the water they were taking out of the reservoir because it was heavily contaminated with nutrients. Um, and it was costing them a lot of money to do that. It was an interbasin transfer and they were paying uh, you know, a pretty high price for it. And what we suggested was, uh, why don't you take the money that you're putting into that interbasin transfer of water to make it potable why don't you put, why don't you put uh, agricultural best management practices on the ground that keeps that contamination from getting into your reservoir to begin with? Wouldn't that make more sense? Uh, so if you can show that there's an economic benefit uh, to these municipalities uh, by taking certain actions, then it's a lot easier to get them to make a decision 
to do that. Uh, so you really have to kind of look at where, what, what are, what are the interests of the decision makers uh, who aren't directly involved in uh, bay restoration, and how can we help them justify taking these actions? And sometimes you have to be pretty creative in, in terms of looking at things from their shoes, and then uh, basically explaining how what you're suggesting is going to benefit them in the long run. Absolutely. And I, I always say too that, you know, reflecting on it and, and noticing what levers you have available to you to pull. And I think circling back to uh, the conversation we had about how overwhelming the whole climate crisis can feel if mm. you're trying to solve it as one individual. Um, <laughs> yeah. It takes looking at your community, your surroundings, and realizing where the opportunities are to make change and where you can make a positive impact and who you can influence. And just going from there. Um, and over time, even if they're small actions, it, it all adds up, whether it's building a rain garden or um, protecting part of your property to writing a letter to your member of Congress, you know, there's many ways to get involved. And I think it's going to be different for everybody, depending on who you are and where you are. But I really, really wholeheartedly believe that there are ways that everybody can can positively impact their community. It, it just takes a moment to, to notice what those, those moments, those opportunities are. Absolutely. So now you are retired. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> what are you up to now in retirement? Well, you know, I, th I thought retirement was going to be very difficult for me. Um, I've always been very um, structured. That I've always had a job. I've always put in, you know, at least 40 hours, usually a lot more. And so I was concerned that um, retiring would drive me crazy. And um, I found out that that didn't turn out to be the case, uh, that um, there are a lot of things to do, uh, especially doing things like hiking and kayaking and traveling and, and uh, taking care of pets and, the, and all the like. Um, you know, I, I have been serving on a number of boards. Um, the uh, uh, Chesapeake Legal Alliance, um, I serve on the board of advisors for them. Uh, I've been serving as a, a policy advisor to a local organization called Shore Rivers, which is a conglomeration of uh, four different riverkeeper organizations on the eastern shore. Um, I, I, uh, I don't want to sound... Um, uh, braggadocious, but, uh, you know, people call me to participate in certain activities. Um, I'm working with an organization on um, Maryland environmental health issues and looking at uh, trying to get passage of what's referred to as a green am amendment, uh, which would be an amendment to the Maryland Constitution that provides um, environmental rights to people that lays those out in the um, in specific detail uh, that goes above and beyond um, the legislative, normal, statutory, uh, regulatory programs, uh, that this would become, just like civil rights, it would become a right that individual citizens of, of uh, Maryland have. 
Um, so I stay busy doing those things. Uh, I am kind of jealous about guarding my time uh, just so I can enjoy uh, the things that I enjoy doing, like kayaking. Um, I've had some health issues, and uh, that certainly has kind of refocused me. Um, you know, uh, the old saying goes, uh, you, you know, your uh, obituary isn't going to say, uh, gee, I wish I attended more meetings. Um <laughs> Uh, in terms of regrets, um, it, my regrets will be I, I, I didn't take advantage of that beautiful day to get out on the water. Um, so it, it, retirement has been interesting, and I'm trying to balance it um, and continue my involvement in bay restoration uh, issues, um, but also uh, trying to make sure I'm enjoying myself. Um, I was uh, dating a woman uh, a number of years ago, and she uh, made the observation. She said, you know, um, you spend a lot of time talking about protecting the environment. Um, why don't you get out and, and enjoy it more? Uh, and that was kind of a wake-up call. I love that. <laughs> I feel like I need to have that as a, a sign on my desk because that's real. I mean, I think a lot of people in this field fall into that. They spend so much time sitting behind their computer and at their desk, you know, sorting through policy and on the phone and they're not actually out connecting with it. And then it takes that moment of going out and uh, spending a, a few hours or days outside just to reconnect with everything and realize that maybe, maybe we're a little bit all off balanced. Yeah, exactly. I, I also spend a lot of time um, trying to help younger people get employment. Uh, I'm working with an, a number of uh, recent graduates who are saying, you know, it's really tough um, finding work, especially now with the pandemic and all that. So, you know, I've, I've given them suggestions about uh, different periodicals they might subscribe to. Uh, so they're getting job notices, uh, giving them some advice like, you know, when you get a job, um, you know, you, you should think about the next job. Um, not that you want to step right out and start, um, you know, looking for work after you get your first job. But I think you always need to kind of uh, keep that next step in mind. Not that it's going to uh, guide your every decision over the course of, you know, four or five years, but um, you should be thinking about how you might advanced uh, through the ranks, if that's in fact what you want to do. Um, not everybody, I mean, there are people who um, grow up and, and go to school and get jobs in one location and they stay there their entire lives. And there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes uh, I actually thought that that might have been a better thing to do. Uh, but then there are some who say, you know, I, I'm uh, dedicated to this work and I'm going to go where I think the best opportunities are and where I can make the, the best contribution. Yeah, and I, I think that is something I have heard from people my age and younger when they're trying to get into the environmental field. It is not necessarily the easiest place to get a job. And I think something I noticed too is is uh, there. it seemed like there was only so far I could go without having a master's degree. And I don't know if that's changing now I think that we're in a, a big time for change, and um, you know I hope that some of those barriers are removed so we can get some more talent and more uh, support in this field because we certainly need it. 
Um, so I think that is really great that you're working with folks to get their foot in a door and, and, you know, if they have questions about anything, um, impart some of your wisdom. Um, and I think that that is actually a great segue into how I like to wrap up each of my shows because I usually try to um, have my guests share a little bit of final wisdom with everybody. And I do this by asking a series of the same, they're a little bit broader questions relating to climate and then any sort of final words or insights that you might have. Um, So I always start with, what do you think is the most pressing environmental challenge that we're faced with? Um, I've wrestled with this question a lot. And um, a good friend of mine, Tom Horton, uh, said that, uh, is convinced that overpopulation is the biggest environmental threat. Um, And certainly, the more people we have on this planet, the more difficult uh, it is to protect the environment um, for all the reasons we know. I mean, you, people need to have places to live and they need places to shop and, and grow food and all the rest of it. Um, and there's a limit to the carrying capacity of this of this globe. Um, but, you know, that it, that's a, a difficult issue, and we've been wrestling with that question since the early 60s, um, and we really haven't figured out a, a, a good response to it. Um, industrialized populations obviously seem to um, uh, reduce the number of children they have. Um, it's shown over time, uh, but if we all develop like industrialized uh uh, nations have, um, and we consume a lot more resources per person, even if we reduce the number of people, we may not be reducing the consumption of uh, resources that aren't renewable. So it's a, it's a big dilemma. Um, you know, climate change obviously is a huge issue uh, that we're wrestling with that, um, you know, it's going to have some disastrous consequences. And, um, you know, the political situation now is such that we've taken a couple of steps back in terms of dealing with this issue. Um, you know, I'm hoping that uh, we will understand the severity of the impact and, and do things to um, correct the problem, to reduce the carbon emissions and um, to reduce the uh, climate impacts that are associated with high levels of CO2. Um, It's going to be an all hands on deck um, issue at some point. You know, what we've seen in this country, and I think a lot of other countries, is that um, we don't really act to do the right thing until, you know, it's a five alarm fire. Um, And I think we're we're coming to the point where it's going to be a five alarm fire pretty soon. Um, we can see the evidence of that all around us, uh, just in terms of the amount of flooding that's occurring, uh, even when it's not raining and even when there aren't uh, storms that are causing uh, tidal surge or whatever. Um, this is everyday, you know, sunshine kinds of flooding events that are, that are occurring and um, we need to take them more seriously. There was a, a movie that was... Um, put together that talked about um, military readiness and they focused on the Norfolk area and they didn't mention climate change once in this movie. Uh, they just talked about uh, readiness and deployment and how uh, the flooding that was occurring is keeping 
military uh, from being in a state of readiness that uh, would be required, that uh, sometimes you can't even get the personnel to these ships uh, if they have to uh, move out and, and get deployed. Um, and that's certainly a, a huge issue. And I think we need to c- continue to try to look for these kinds of situations where you divorce it from the, the stigma that's associated in some people's minds with climate change and, and you just look at the real world impacts of it and, um, and maybe motivate people to, to take action. Um, yeah, I think uh, we also are, uh, we have a huge issue with plastics, obviously. Um, we're looking at these uh, gyres in the Pacific Ocean where uh, we have plastic islands, basically, um, that are twice the size of the state of Texas. If you can eat, I can't even wrap my head around that. Uh, but it's getting into the food chain. Uh, you know, these plastics uh, degrade, they break up. Uh, they get ingested by uh, fish and wildlife, and um, it's harmful to them, obviously, but uh, to the extent that we then ingest these animals, uh, fish in particular, uh, we're also jeopardizing our own health. Um, you know, we, we have a variety of pollutants that uh, get introduced uh, into the environment that we have absolutely no understanding of what the ultimate fate is. Um, I studied um, a thing called technology assessment when I was in, doing my graduate work. And um, the idea is to, before a new technology or a new chemical or new product rolls out, um, that you make a very conservative, concerted effort to try to determine what the fate of that product and byproducts are over the long term. So you look at uh, everything from the initial production of the materials that go into the manufacturing of the product. Uh, you look at the, the manufacturing process itself. Then you look at the use and ultimate disposal of that product and try to determine what the environmental and health impacts are going to be associated with the full life cycle of that product or material. We don't do that. Um, there, there is a discipline out there that shows us how to do that, but um, you know, except for some chemicals and some pharmaceutical products, we, we really don't do that on any kind of rigorous basis. And I'm not aware of any product, and, and there may be some, but uh, any product that uh, was started and then somebody said, no, uh, this isn't worth it. We shouldn't, we shouldn't go any further with this. Um, and that goes for, you know, simple consumer products. Uh, one of my favorite is um, uh, kids' shoes that had uh, these lights in the heels. Uh, so when the, the kids walk, uh, they light up. Initially, yeah, I remember that. Initially, <laughs> those were mercury switches. Uh, they were little uh, mercury switches inside the shoe. And when that shoe went to the landfill and got crushed, that mercury would be released. Or the convenience light in our trunk, when you uh, lift the, the trunk lid open and the light goes on automatically, this, the switch that allowed that to happen had mercury in it. Um, those cars, for example, would go off to, uh, to a scrapyard they would be shredded, um, that mercury capsule would open up and contaminate the metal, the scrap metal. The scrap metal then would go to an electric arc furnace where you know it was uh, uh, made molten again, and that metal would vaporize and come out the smokestack without any kind of control or treatment on it. Uh, when I was in Pennsylvania, um, 
virtually every water body uh, was contaminated with high levels of mercury. Um, you know, we, we introduce these things and, and we don't think them through adequately. Um, and we, we were trying to work with the automobile industry to help remove those switches, stop manufacturing cars that had those mercury switches because there were alternatives, number one. And number two is to help figure out a way of getting uh, the mercury switches out of cars that were going to the scrapyards. And, um, you know, talk about trying to uh, turn the, the uh, Titanic on a dime. We, we couldn't get the American automobile industry to uh, step up to the plate and, and really help out in dealing with that issue. Um, I'm happy to report that uh, cars no longer put mercury switches uh, in their vehicles. So, um, for any new cars, at least, it's not going to be a problem, but there's still a lot of old cars that are going to be going to the scrapyard that uh, it'll continue to be an issue. So, you know, I, I guess uh, just to be more thoughtful and more conscious about the ultimate fate of these materials once they um, are they serve their purpose, whatever that may be. Because I like to end the show on, on a more uplifting note, because we often talk about climate and you know, as I keep saying, it's very overwhelming sometimes, but what are you hopeful for moving forward? Well, I think, um, you know, there's a greater recognition of, of these things, certainly uh, with plastics. Um, you know, there, you see these social movements where uh, consumers who are, are conscious of these things and concerned about these things actually put demands on the, the manufacturers, um, you know, trying to stop using plastic straws, for example. Um, and all of this is uh, granted somewhat voluntary, but um, if you can motivate society to exercise their consumer rights and say, we're not going to continue to uh, buy these products unless you you change how they're manufactured or change the materials you're using, whatever the case may be. I think um, the consumer has a lot more power in, in these cases than they might think, but it does take uh, concerted effort. Um, and, and in that, I think uh, I feel most hopeful that when these situations are explained to people and they understand what the implications are, that, that they'll do the right thing. Um, I know uh, seeing uh, video footage of an albatross uh, that died and, and they open the albatross up and you see, you know, plastic bottle caps and pieces of circuit board and, you know, all sorts of things that uh, ultimately get ingested uh, because of our lack of control over what we do with this material. Um, it's pretty motivating, <laughs> to say the least. And I think just uh, increasing the awareness among consumers that the, this is the kind of impact that we're having uh, by continued use of these products. Um, I think it motivates a lot of people to take action. So this last one is a two-part question. So I'm wondering what the best advice you've ever been given is. And on the flip side of that, what advice do you have for our listeners? Um. I mean, when you talk about the best advice, are you talking about uh, individuals and career paths or? I like to leave that open-ended. Um, if you would like to keep it on the career path that is 
totally fine. It could be, it, it could okay. be anything. Well, um, <laughs> for me, uh, it's always been following my gut, you know, following when you, when you come to a decision, when you have to make a decision, uh, and, and this is true uh, for career, certainly, but uh, for a lot of decisions that everybody's faced with, whether it's buying a house or relocating or having children or whatever, um, you should really listen to that kind of voice inside and, you know, are you comfortable moving ahead with that decision? Do you think it's the right decision? It's it, not to be confused with um, challenging yourself and stepping out of your comfort zone. I think that's kind of a different uh, discussion. But um, those are the two recommendations I guess I would make personally is one, follow your gut and two, step out of your comfort zone. Um, you know, we're always going to be faced with situations that have a, a relatively uh, some level of uncertainty. And eventually, you're going to have to decide. And uh, I think you listen to your gut, you listen to your heart, and and you make the decision, understanding that, you know, maybe it's not going to be the absolute best decision that you could have made. And, and I think you mentioned this in the, uh, in the discussion we had uh, early on, is that, uh, you know, y- you make mistakes. And I think the, the the thing we need to do is learn from those mistakes. We need to analyze them and say, okay, how could I have done this better? And what information could I have taken into account that would have led me to a, a different decision that would have been more beneficial? Um, and then for me, again, um, just challenging yourself by switching up what you're doing. You know, if you've been in a position for five years, you probably know the position pretty well. And there's a certain comfort in that. Um, but if you if you want to learn something new um, and you want to challenge yourself, you know, you need to push a little bit harder um, and, and step out and uh, just understand that, the, you know, there will be consequences and you'll need to deal with those down the road. Sometimes those consequences will be pretty insignificant. Other times they'll They'll be life-changing, but they're only going to be good if if you learn from them. Yeah, and and take them as they come. (laughs) And when in doubt, go kayaking. Um, Yes. (laughs) Yeah, or forest bathing. (laughs) Nick, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate you and your dedication to conservation and uh, the guidance and mentorship that you provide. You provided me and so many others along the way. Um, This was a really fantastic conversation. And I uh, thank you again for joining me today. Well, thanks for asking me to be be part of the program. Um, And I just want to remind you that there's always a lot of opportunities should you um, feel the need to return to the Chesapeake Bay watershed. (laughs) You helped us when you were here, and I'm sure you could help us again. Oh, I appreciate that. And the pull is always strong to return, so I'm not ruling it out. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'd also like to thank the listeners. If you like what you heard and want to hear more episodes of the Sea Change podcast or shows like this one, you can find the American Shoreline Podcast Network anywhere you listen to podcasts. Subscribes, rates, and reviews are always appreciated. 
And you can connect with us on social media. On Facebook, we are Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And on Twitter, we are at Coastal News 365. You can connect with me personally on Instagram. I am at Jenna Valente. And on Twitter, I am at Yenna Benna. That's Y-E-N-N-A-B-E-N-N-A. So find us online and let's chat about our beautiful coastlines.